I am so excited to have on the show today a person I'm a huge fan of. And, and you know, Jesus, when the rich young ruler came to him, said, uh, why do you call me good? And I understand that we have to be careful in our accolades of people. And we know Christ had a point to make about that. Uh, so I don't want to go to that extent, but I, I do want to say that I'm a huge fan of Diana Boer. And so this is other things with Diana Boer and uh, Diana. She's a best-selling author. We're going to talk more about that. Uh, she's a book coach and she's the CEO of her own company that she, she created. She launched, she birthed called BoerResearch.com. And so anyway, I want you to welcome with me, Diana Boer. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, you're in Texas, right? I am right in the DFW area. Okay. And I'm sitting here in uh, what they call the greater Tennessee area, greater central Tennessee. But uh, is it still a Texas heat wave there? Oh, it is. It is. I've been out in it all day. I want to share a story, Diane, about you, because uh, I tell you, it's cool how God brings things full circle. And this is really full circle because I met Diana at uh, my home church several years ago where I had come back on staff as an associate pastor. But years before meeting Diana, I noticed that there was a building in uh, really Southern Grapevine right on the edge of Euless where I, I lived and um, was exercising one morning. And I noticed a building uh, to the right of me that said, uh, yeah, I think it was Brewer and Associates. And I thought, I wonder Brewer if it's that. Yeah. What, what was the name on the Brewer consultants back then about uh, 10 years ago, we changed it to Brewer research. Yes. Okay. And so I immediately think, I wonder if it's that famous lady, the communication expert. And then I thought to myself, no, what would be the odds right here in Grapevine, Texas? And so it didn't give much thought to it. Fast forward and I meet Diana at church uh, where she was a member of the same church that I was on staff as one of the associate pastors. And uh, we began to develop a, a friendship and a, a ministry relationship. And her and her husband uh, came on board as one of our Bible study group teachers. And I was so thrilled. But one day, like my mind's triangulating on all this, and I put it together and I thought to myself, wait, I wonder if she's the one that did the cassettes that I have from way back in my beginning ministry about um, communication. And so I went up to Diana and I asked her, I said, Diana, did you do some cassette tapes some time ago on communication, a little two cassette thing? And she thought for a minute, wasn't sure. And then finally she, she determined, yes, I did those. And I said, well, if I can find those, I said, would you autograph them for me? And uh, Diane looked at me like, well, if you really want that. And I said, I would be thrilled. So somewhere in, you know, we moved here from Texas, but in the, the office stuff, I haven't been able to put into this smaller office somewhere in that, in that, in those boxes are those cassette tapes. And so uh, I just want to say that we have that uh, connection. Um, but uh, anyway, so, you know, Diana, now I have signed cassette tapes by the famous Diana Boer. That's a good story. I haven't heard that before, but I do remember the occasion now that you mention it. <laughs> and I even brought my own Sharpie, like a good fan. Oh, <laughs> uh. Uh, yeah, that's fun. But I'm thrilled. I tell you, I looked up. I mean, of course, let me say Diana Boer is all over the map. Anywhere you want to find books, mm -hmm. you find Diana. And uh, I was noticing that on Amazon, uh, I think it's Amazon or it may be on uh, Hoopla because they have uh, several of Diana's audio and uh, audio books and uh, I guess audio teaching series. Uh, but on there, they reported that you've published over 4 million copies of books through Simon and Schuster, Penguin, 
they've changed there. The Penguin Random House, Peregrine, is that right? Penguin and Random House merged about, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago. But yeah, all of them have been published with the major with the majors because I need the marketing clout <laughs> with all the publishers to get the book out there. And uh, Harper Collins, uh, Warner McGraw Hill, which is of course one of the big business uh, publications, uh, Tyndale and Thomas Nelson. But uh, for the record, because I read different numbers on the web, uh, what is the total number of books as far as the the volumes of books that you've written to date? Forty nine. I'm working on number fifty here. Before okay, I now, hit the grave, I was, I was <laughs> sure I've got to that 50. Yeah. Well, uh, if you can share with us, because you told me that in preparation for this interview uh, conversation, uh, can you share with us what the book's going to be about or, or the title of it, something like that? Um, I'll just share. Uh, it's on wellness, how to, how to stay well for all of your life and how to age well. So uh, that that's the general concept. I'm writing it with a doctor, so. Oh, cool. Do I, do I know him by chance? And no, no, no probably not. No, I just um, met uh, my wife's over contact, there. <laughs> yeah. They contacted me about uh, two months ago, three months and asked if I would help them get this book written and use my contacts. And so that's what I'm doing. Well, and you're good at that. I tell you, but you had a premier career. You have a premier career as a CEO of your own company. Like I said, that you founded and created, you work with top fortune 500 companies. And I read one, article that said 12 of the top 25 largest companies that you are either are working with or have worked with. And at the same time that you've had this success, something that I really um, respect and look up to you about is the fact that you are overt about your Christian faith. I didn't have a strategy. I just know that is my worldview, a Christian worldview. And so it's bound to come out. I know some people may not like it, but, uh, and, and occasionally I'll get a negative comment, but not often. I, if, for example, in my company, I've had through the years workshops, communication workshops, you know, business writing, technical writing, presentations, that kind of thing. And people would come into our building and I displayed my Christian books, you know, when I've written for, um, women of faith in their Bible and Tim Clinton has a, has a Bible translation. So I have those in my bookshelf. They can't pass up and pass through without seeing some of my books that have been published by Christian publishers. But I always aimed in every speech to even in a business workshop to say something about the belief. I would say at the beginning of maybe of a workshop in any country, I've been in a lot of countries doing the presentations and I would say something like, when people would come in and sit down in the back seat, this is just like my church. Every Sunday morning, people sit down in the back seat. They don't like to get up front or something like that so that they know I'm a Christian and that's where I'm coming from in my worldview. I, I, you mentioned the Fortune 500 companies, over, over half we've worked with. And of course that list changes every year, but I have had a client one time, only one time to call and say, I understand that you tell this story at the end of your speech about how God answered pra a specific prayer that's really touching, but it mentions religion and we don't want you to do that. And in that speech, again, this is a top 10 company. Somebody asked me a question that just set that up and I went ahead and did it and they had no complaints. They had rave reviews on the, on the keynote and there was just no complaints about it. So I've just tried to, try to continue 
in that vein by saying something that lets them know this is my worldview, this is my belief, this is my faith. And I've had people come up then and ask, you know, I've had people say, are you a Christian? Even when I didn't say anything about it, because they said, I can just tell by the way you conduct yourself this, these last two days that we've been together in the workshop. So I, it's not something that I overtly have a strategy to do, but I am conscious if I am thinking about a Christian verse or, you know, something that happened, I don't mind telling it to people, particularly when they've asked me. What I'm hearing is she's saying it's the overflow of her life. And the fact that that she doesn't mask who she, who she is, uh, at the same time, she's not attempting to be preachy with her corporate um, engagements. Uh, and so I, I hope and my prayer is that people will be inspired to be who you are and what you are and not clandestine. And uh, I continue to hear what Diana has just testified that the overwhelming majority of the Fortune 500 companies that she's worked with, they accept her for who she is and what she does. And that can be an inspiration to all of us. In, in your book on your signature life, you talk about some of the core aspects of, of things we need to give attention to if we're going to have that signature life. And I want you to define in just a minute what you mean by signature life, because that speaks to me. It's a word picture. It's just like recently in Charles Spurgeon's devotion, I came across the word excelsior, which means, you know, upward or ever higher. And uh, I found out that Stan, what's his name? The Marvel Comics guy, that was his, you know, byline, but it moved me, you know, to that. That's me. You know, I want to be ever increasing towards God in heaven. But this concept of your signature life really does the same thing for me. It hits a chord, but I want you to just express a little bit. And there's a book uh, by the same title, Your Signature Life, Pursuing God's Best Every Day. That's published on Tyndale, am I correct? The, and the companion book, too. There's one on your life and your signature work, and they, they work together. But but very profound and very timely, especially in the in the midst of the culture that we're in, where things are kind of coming unraveled, um, to the fact that this is still very important, that we need to be people of intentionality and give attention to our character, our relationships and working together. But uh, for just a moment, if you could explain to me what, in a nutshell, what you feel is the best definition for that signature life. And then also in the book, you talk a lot about calling, which really hit a chord again with me uh, where I am right now and watching the culture, but just, you know, that concept of what you mean by signature life and also uh, how you view calling. The metaphor that I adopted was that of an artist. You know, when an artist gets through and the painting is just like they want it, they sign it. And so that's what I had in mind. I chose that metaphor to say you should be intentional about creating your life. And so in that that book, I focused on three different areas. One part of your painting, your your creation of your life has to do with relationships. And basically anybody we come in contact with, whether it's, you know, a few seconds or a few minutes or, or a lifetime is they pour into us. We pour into them as part of our investment, part of our painting creation of our life. And then there are um, the the character traits that we have that are built into our life. That's part of who we are and the, 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 the design we're, we're painting. And then the last part is our work. You know, the, the, the Bible verse, uh, do your work is unto the Lord. And there are plenty of references about work being divine, and it's a way to worship God by the, the excellence that you do your job. So I, I thought that was just a great metaphor, the artist signing their work, to think which, when you put your head on your pillow at night, are you thinking, 
I did the best I could today. I, I painted in all those areas, relationships and in work and in character. And at the end of your life, you know, when you go on to heaven and you present that painting to the Lord, what what have you painted there? What have you created? Because we have choices and we we live by the consequences of those choices. We have impact and influence by the consequences of those choices. So that was the concept. And then I went into uh, in one of the chapters, can't remember what chapter I talk about how to find your calling, because I have a lot of people in my basically 35 years of doing corporate either keynotes or um, training workshops and consulting, you know, just big picture consulting with the senior team. And many people have been working a long time at a job and they still haven't found the job. They still feel like I, mm -hmm. I, I want to, this is, this is not honoring or this is boring. Or if I'm really going to please the Lord, I should go do something else, you know, be a pastor, a missionary or whatever. But that's just not true. That's not biblical. And because I, God calls us to many different things. And so what I did in the book was to put together what I call the six P's of, of finding your calling. Um, just to make people sure of that, one is, you know, in power tools, if you're building something, you're constructing something, you know, you've got a hammer and a saw and, and whatever. Our, our power tools, of course, are our skills, our talents, our attitude, our personality. Those are the things we we build with. So in other words, God's not going to call you to be a opera singer if you can't sing like <laughs> I can't sing. So that's that's important to, to recognize the, the natural abilities that God has given you. And then the second thing, you have to have a passion for your calling. If you think, well, I can do this well, maybe maybe accountant saying, well, I can really crunch numbers really well, but it's boring to me. Well, that's obviously not what God's calling you to do. You 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 need the passion. He puts a passion in your heart for doing something. Many people, you, I, I know, Kenna, you've heard this comment. People say, I'd do this job even if they didn't pay me, <laughs> right? You, you hear that frequently. And so God gives you the power tools, the skills, natural traits. He gives you the uh, passion to do it. And then the third P, I call it the, the plot or the path. He's not going to call you to, let's say, gives you... Um, it's a skill with language and you're fluent. You speak two or three different languages. You're really good at writing and, and you like bilingual uh, study and you like traveling. Well, he may give you a path to an interpreter job in Brazil. You know, <laughs> who knows? There, there is a circumstance that you can use that passion and you can use those skills. And if that's absent and you think, well, gee, I, I want to interpret and I speak a lot of languages and I like to travel, but there's no one wanting that talent. There's no circumstance that God's putting you in that gives you opportunity. Then obviously he's not calling you. You might enjoy it and you might have effect, but it's not what he's specifically designed for you to do. And then um, I, there are three more what I call affirming or confirming things that help you know you you've chosen the right thing or that that is what God's called you to and one of those I would say is um, your peace of mind you have ultimate peace doing this you think I found it this is it uh, you also another one of those peas you you get praise from people they see that in you you know they see that how God is blessing what you're doing and I'm sure Kenny people are saying I love hearing your voice, man. You've got a broadcast voice for the podcast. So when people 
recognize that skill or attitude in you, they comment on it frequently. And again, that's another way to, to confirm that that's. Nasky, are you, are you making that assessment or no, I appreciate I, that. Yes, but yes, actually I, I have, I have heard that. Yes. And, uh, and people will recognize that when, when you're operating out of your skill set and your attitudes and your habits are matching and they are what God called you to do, other people notice it and they comment on it. And, and then I would say positive outcomes, that third sort of confirming P out of the six P's is the outcomes are positive. It's you're making a success of what you do. And so I think with all those six quote P's in mind, it helps you know, find, identify, and then confirm that your job is what God's calling you to do. You're talking about the comments you made. I was exercising here in where I live in middle Tennessee. I was down at the city park that I can get to when I'm in good shape uh, to then walk the little track. It's a really beautiful park. And I kept noticing this guy almost every time I'd go out, he would be sitting at a picnic table. He had a laptop and I could tell he was doing work uh, remotely. So one day I struck up a conversation. I was going to share the gospel with him. I found out that he, uh, I think he's now the head writer for Odyssey, uh, the James Dobson uh, folks on the family. So he was not the head then, but the person was retiring. And so I said, Hey, would you, you know, listen to my podcast? And it's funny because he texted me back and he said, well, I could listen to your voice all day. And I thought, well, that's cool. But anyway, so I thought it was kind of funny. But uh, I tell you, Diana, the, talking about the calling and the passion and uh, the feedback that what I see in my ministry is so many people, they're growing up in a, in a household culture or maybe even in an academic culture to where they're not, uh, people aren't pointing out to them that, hey, do you know that you're good at this? And, uh, you know, even myself, when I was praying about going back to school when I was in my 30s, and I was just in a quandary and I, I really wanted to do it, but I'd laid some things out there and nothing was was clicking. And, uh, you know, as far as like getting a church back in Texas where the seminary was located. And I was talking to a friend of mine one day who's a, a biblical counselor. We were having lunch. He did work for us at our church. And I told him what was going on. And he finally asked me, he said, well, Kenny, what do you want to do? And I'm telling you, Diana, I was probably, what, 32, you know, at the time. And in 32 years of living, no one had ever asked me, well, what do you want to do? And what you're talking about, that passion. And I said, well, I want to go to school. And so he looked at me and he goes, well, then go to school. <laughs> and, and that was the pivot point for me. But uh, I think it's important. And the emphasis on calling, because I tell you, uh, I think it's an epidemic proportion. Pardon the, maybe it's a bad pun, but for the lack of uh, direction, people that are wandering in a sense of aimlessness and a sense of no calling among the late teens, the 20 somethings, even into the 30 somethings and 40 somethings. I think that our, our culture is completely uh, blown apart with people who don't really know what they want to do. And so we see this prolonged adolescence to where people in their late twenties, you know, early thirties, still living at home if they haven't married. And so I think it's important. Um, in conjunction with that, and I was so thrilled in, in reading this book that uh, I didn't realize that you had a passion from an early age about writing, and you had a strong sense really of a divine call since the age of 12 to write, uh, and you had an understanding breakthrough at the age of 27 on how to connect your God-given passion with your set of skills, and I would appreciate it 
uh, if you would elaborate on that part of your backstory. And I've heard a little bits and pieces throughout, you know, my knowledge of you, but I've never talked to you about it. And so, but in reading uh, what you shared in the book, and if you could expound on that, uh, tremendously encouraging to people, uh, especially in where we are with our culture. Kenny, at first, uh, I believe that God calls us to a lot of things. Any uh, any work that's honoring, that's that's respectful work, it's you know ethical. That can be honoring God. But when I was twelve, I did feel that every time I would go to a camp, every time I was in church, I just felt this heaviness of you need to make a commitment. I'm calling you to a special Christian vocation. And I didn't know what that was because I didn't feel like, you know, it couldn't be a pastor, you know, in our denomination, a woman couldn't, I, I didn't feel called to go to the mission field. But every time for like four years until I was 16, there was just this heaviness, you need to, you need to make this commitment. So when I was 16, I went down in front of my church and a small church, small country church, and told the pastor, I said, God's calling me to do something in in the Christian ministry, but I just don't know what it is. And so uh, he had people coming by, you know, shake my hand after the service and everybody said, oh, you're going to be a pastor's wife or oh, you're going to be a missionary. And I'd say, no, you know, and that's that is not the exact thing you say on a first date. Hey, hey, you know, I just want to let you know I'm going to marry a minister or I'm going to marry whatever. That kind of scares guys off when you're 16 or 17. But I, I didn't know what it was. I knew I, I liked to write in, in school doing in uh, English compositions, but had no connection there. But as I married, had two kids, my husband was struggling very severely with mental illness. He'd been in and out of the psychiatric hospital several times, and I knew he was not going to be able to make us a living. I was going to be supporting my family. And so I had the two toddlers at home, and I was just trying to decide, what can I do? So I went to uh, a business pastor at our church then. It was in Pampa, Texas. And I said, you know, I'm going to be making the living for all of us now. What? Uh, how am I going to do that? What What should I do? And he said, well, what did you like? You know, the same question you just mentioned, Kenny, that somebody asked you. He said, what, do you, what would you like to do? And I said, well, um, I I used to like to write English compositions back in school. And he said, well, I suggest you figure out how to make a living at that. And so I thought, well, okay. I went to the library, just checked out everything in the 800 section. You know, it was not the internet here making it so easy. I literally had to go to the library, checked out and up, uh, checked out about 50 or 60 books, piled them in the backseat of my car, went home and just basically read overnight. But then you have to have that, um, uh, that plot that I was talking about, the circumstance. So, so how do you do that? Uh, the the Sunday school board had asked me about uh, writing some, uh, well, they just had an ad. It wasn't me that they uh, appealed to. They just had an ad somewhere saying, if you'd like to write Bible study lessons curriculum, get in touch with this. I had, I'd sent in an application, but hadn't heard anything about it. And uh, so while my husband was in the hospital, it had been three, three nights, three days, he had been there. And I, I could not sleep, hadn't slept in three nights. And that's pretty weary. <laughs> you know, I got up, I walked into the family room at three in the morning with my Bible. And I sat down and I said, God, please show me what I can do. I, I, I've got to sleep. And it was just as, as clear as any answer I've gotten. It was just right. This, this feeling in my, in my mind, right. That's what I want you to do. And so I walked into school. I was, I was teaching. That was my first year to teach. 
Spanish. I walked into the principal that morning and said, um, I, I need to quit my job at the midterm. This is like in November, late November. I need to quit my job at the, at the, uh, uh, session break, you know, in January. And he said, well, it just so happens that there is a uh, school board meeting tonight. And if you write out your resignation on your conference period, I'll present it tonight. And I'm thinking, oh, great. This is wonderful. And then the next morning, so I did that. And the next, he said, it's just routine. You know, that certainly they will let you out of your contract, just routine. So the next morning I'm going in and again, in a small town, they tell you the local news. And this lady said, uh, on the news and the school board met last night in session and blah, blah, blah. And they voted to refuse Diana Boer's resignation. And I went, oh, what's going on here? I felt certain that God has called me to, to do something in writing. And, and now they're not accepting it. They're not going to let me out of my contract. And by this time, the, the Sunday school board had said, we want you to come to a training in January to get started on this new career. And now the school board saying, no, 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 we're not letting you out. So I, I was totally just confused, puzzled, discouraged for four days. On the fourth day after this conversation with the principal, when he said, oh, it's just routine, he sent me a note and says, come, come see me on your conference period. So I go down there at seventh period and he said, I just got a call from a lady who wants to move back to Pampa. She teaches Spanish. She wants a job this next semester. He said, so we're letting you out of the contract. And I was just, thank you God for that confirmation that that was the right thing. And that was the, that was the right decision because, you know, I think it was John Steinbeck who said, um, Horse racing makes writing and publishing seem like a stable occupation. <laughs> so, you know, there's there, there are a lot of things to when you strike out on the path God calls you to do. There are a lot of things that can trip you up. But I know that God just wanted me to think back at that time and that confirmation he gave me that this is the career path I have for you. Those of you who are watching, I want to, to make a point that uh, – we are recording this through Google meet and I went through several months, believe it or not, of trying to find the, the best platform that works across the board, whether somebody calls me in from a cell phone or whatever. But one of the quirks of Google meet is that if I laugh or make noise, then it cuts in on the video of the person who's talking. And so I've been having to restrain myself as Diana shared this uh, powerful, encouraging story with us because uh, sitting here thinking about the reality of you clearly hearing the, the 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 voice of God, and and that's actually occurred to me several times in my life to where it, it it's basically audible. There's it's not just inside your head, but then for you to actually hear it's like in a movie uh, broadcast that your uh, your request to be let out of your contract is denied. Uh, that's something out of uh, you know of, of uh, a Julia Roberts movie, you know. But I can't imagine uh, how shocked and dismayed you were, and yet to see God come back around and to say, uh, "No, Diana, it, it, it's still on go. Uh, yeah. Just you know, be faithful, hang tight." Um, right. But uh, right. I tell you, you know, when he said, he said it's just routine, and you probably know this, and I know it from being involved in different school. You know, where kids are going through, they don't want a teacher in the classroom who doesn't want to be there. So I really thought. This is automatic. They will do it. And so when they came back and said, we're not letting you out of that contract, I was shocked. And I was thinking, it's God saying, wait a minute, you misinterpreted what I said. But then four days later, 
for it to be automatic. They, they had no other applications, no other teachers in the district who could teach Spanish. So that's the reason, of course, that they turned me down. And then all of a sudden, here comes this lady moving in, wanting a job in January, new semester. So it was definitely a God moment. Because I do know Diana, I want to say, and I told her this before the recording, because I'm so thrilled to have her today. Uh, but what she's sharing with you, this is Diana Burr, and she is the real deal. And I, I'm telling you that if you're like me, you hear about people, you read their books, you see them speak at a conference, and you wonder, I wonder if they really live that. But I can testify that Diana does. And uh, her ministry in our church, when I was on staff there, and, and she was serving with, we were serving the Lord together, uh, that she was a, a, a just a model individual to our, our women, to our men, and an inspiration. And uh, so, but as she's sharing this story, it's an example. This is her. It's not uh, something she's fabricating or drawing from uh, someone else's life. Uh, but that should encourage you because I tell you, so many things happening in our culture and in people and leadership and so forth that you begin to lose hope that, wait, is anybody legitimate or really living out the things they're talking about? And so today we're talking with someone who does. But um, I, I, a side note, so now how did, this is truly a side note, but how did you uh, become a Spanish teacher? How did how did you do that? I mean, well, that was my, my, my major was English because mm -hmm. I, I uh, and after that point, by the way, I did go back and get my master's in English literature again because I thought that's part of my skill training that I need. But I, in my undergraduate, it was Spanish, so I was qualified to do the teaching. Well, and let, let me say, by the way, that Diana, I think she graduated in her undergraduate cum laude. Is that correct? Uh, summa cum laude. Summa cum laude at uh, what university? It was University of North Texas. It's now part of the University of Texas system in Denton. Yeah, great, great, great university. Uh, it's a top university in a lot of things, but people don't know it by name. But in the in the drum world, it's one of the top drum schools of all time, right. one of the top psychological, you know, for people studying you know, psychology and counseling, uh, education. Uh, so that's phenomenal. And I tell you, having taken a lot of English in my, my college career and languages, it's very hard. So you're to uh, be, um, <laughs> that's a big deal to get a, a master's in English. Uh, I can still, I won't call her name, but I can still remember my English teacher at Tarrant County College and uh, extremely difficult. But uh, anyway, I, I want to say that you, of course, you're a super pro in the corporate business world and you're an inspiration to everyone. I want to ask you specifically, you know, there's a lot of talk about gender and all this stuff, but I really would appreciate it if you would share with us and especially advice that you can give to girls, to women to women in general on fulfilling your calling, especially against the backdrop of what some people still say is a glass ceiling uh, for women in the corporate world. And I I'm curious, uh, how did you excel beyond the norm and what some would say is a barrier, a roadblock uh, to success for women and share with us your thoughts on the pursuit of excellence and God's best every day at this point of your life and career. But, speak to the women who are watching and, and share with them, you know, how that fits together for you, because you, you can't say what Diana Burr has been held back. You've been extremely successful and in a very difficult realm in the, in the, in the fortune 500 realm. So just, if you can, you know, whatever you feel led to share, I don't want you to get too deep, but you know what I'm saying? Well, actually think probably I never felt that glass ceiling because I was uh, my, uh, I was an entrepreneur. I had my own firm. 
the only time I ever worked for anybody else was teaching school. <laughs> Two years I taught school and um, one in Spanish. And then when I moved to Houston, I taught a senior English and then that was it. So I didn't have some of the limitations that I'm sure women have when they're in a large organization where they're, you know, still the boardroom and the executive team is somewhere between 93, 95% male and, and much fewer of those leaders are female. But I did experience difficulty because of my age, because we know that generally the older and wiser and all these gray hairs, you know, they, they say, you know, something. So when you start your business, like I did at age 30, you and my audience in my my classes my workshops uh, a lot of my consulting i was talking to a senior executive and so i i don't know if it was the female thing or if it was the age thing but i was certainly in the minority there are many sessions that i've spoken to an audience of all men particularly from the oil field when i had oil and gas clients uh, particularly in the high tech those are a lot of our clients uh, in the defense industry, those were a lot of our clients, and they're heavily dominated by male, males. And in a workshop, I would be the only only female for years. That was the case. So, I, and, and certainly when I do one-on-one -on -one coaching now with executives on executive presence, you know, maybe somebody at the middle level that's trying to get to the leadership and that C-level suite, and I do that coaching, it's almost always males. And I would say that you have to have the confidence that God has called you to do what you're doing, that you have the skills, he's given you the knowledge and you just do it and don't think about it. I think one thing that does very much hold women back is their lack of confidence to do what they know. They're, uh, they just, they have to, have to um, show that with their persistence in what they say, even if you're giving a tough message. I can remember walking into a, a large banking system uh, everybody would recognize the name if I called this company and they had the CEO and 17 executive vice presidents. And he, he asked me a question. Don't you think that so-and-so? So obviously I knew what the answer was that he wanted me to give. And I had to say, actually, I don't. I, I don't think it would work best this way. And later, the psychologist who was also in the room, who, whose job it was to, to advise all of these senior executives, said that blew them away, that you had to get your age that you have the confidence to tell the CEO, no, that was not the best approach to improve the communication with their customers and outline something different. He said he really respected you after that. And really you, you gained credibility, not lost it. And I was true. <laughs> I was glad to hear that. But um, I, I've just never felt that my gender or held me back other than through my own thinking, if that makes sense to you. No, I think it's the truth that um, sometimes we, we don't want to face uh, regarding ourselves if we have low self-esteem. Uh, and the fact that what is shining through in this conversation is the fact of uh, the direction you're looking is towards God. And so therefore your self-image is not directed or in, in uh, informed by people around you, but it's informed by uh, your position with him. And uh, boy, I, I pray for people watching this, that it will inspire you to look to God. Don't listen to people. Don't listen to the negativity uh, and, and allow God to inform you on what you're to do. And especially get in touch with what you are interested in because it all works together. And God is the one who's made us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. And he knows who you are and what you like best. And 
that's what we need to do. So uh, to me, I'm thrilled. And, and Katie, let me add an addendum to what I just said here. I think it's important too that you don't have a, a controversial or angry attitude. I've met women who seem to have a chip on their shoulder about something and that doesn't get you anywhere. I think you just, as, as we've discussed, to have that self-confidence to have, you know, what, what skills God has given you to, to know, to be perceptive about a situation, to go ahead and exercise that. I will say though, in working with corporate clients, I have been excluded uh, generally on a, you know, a, a social event. For example, I've, I already mentioned having a workshop and we have 30 men in there no women and they say hey come have a drink with us come to the bar come whatever and i and i think no i i don't that's not who i am i really don't want to do that and if you're going to a nice restaurant i'm i'm happy to go but i never felt angry about it i think you just accept i, I walk a different path i have different ethics and um not not being coming across as self-righteous or holier than thou but just this is what i want to do and i've never been um, I don't think ever penalized. I, I do think I lost one client because I didn't quote socialize in the way they wanted me to socialize. But uh, I never worried about that. I figured that God would send me more in their place. And so that that has not been a problem. Well, and you know, my son, uh, he's up and coming. Uh, he's actually under contract. I won't say with who, but uh, they're in the, the, hopefully the ending of the contract, concluding of making a contract as a producer songwriter for a major Christian label here in Nashville. And uh, I keep encouraging him, his background, of course, because I played contrabass clarinet in, in Texas All-State Band. I was first chair and you can only do an orchestra with that. And it's a, it's a terrible instrument. I mastered it and that's not to say much, but because of that, my sons, they both, uh, we started them in piano, which the piano is the orchestra, the 88 keys. Uh, it's percussive and melodic but then uh, drums and then finally guitar. But I, I keep encouraging my son that as soon as our oldest grandchild, who's a, a girl, Kate, that you need to start teaching her drums because something I've never understood is that there are very few female drummers and there's no reason why there can't be. I mean, Kid Rock has a female drummer. Uh, Sheila E is a, a famous uh, female drummer. Sheila E is a Christian and, um, uh, you know, she played with Prince and stuff. So I, I've, I've never understood, and it has to be either through cultural grooming, you know, to where it's just, you know, girls don't do that. Or perhaps, again, no one's saying, do you like to do that? Go do that. Uh, but a tremendous opportunity. And so, you know, I'm wanting to bust the curve. And in the same way is that at the earliest possible date for Kate to get into the car and learn how to change uh, an oil filter. You know, uh, I, I went, Diana, I went to Tarrant County College and uh, this girl had a classic Mustang. Well, one day she shows up and she's not in the classic Mustang. And I said, what happened to your Mustang? And she said, I blew the engine up. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, my dad got mad at me and said, don't you ever check the oil? But yet he had never shown her how to check the oil. So it always stuck in my mind. But I, what a tremendous testimony. And, and I'm telling you, I'm encouraged. And I know the people who are watching are encouraged. There's something that comes through the book. And it's, I don't think it's just this one book, but it's interesting in your attitude towards serving others and service and how integral it is to a, a, a successful life, to a signature life. And uh, it's interesting because in the last interview I just did with Mark Maxwell, that, that his whole book is on that. 
and he's been overt about that here in the entertainment industry in Nashville. But I'm curious, how how did you come to that uh, as far as that aspect of life and, and your viewpoint towards it being integral to to having a signature life? How did how did that come about? I think probably watching my parents and my grandparents, both my dad and my granddad have the gift, the spiritual gift of service. And so that was their life. I saw that if there was somebody sick in our neighborhood, my dad was over there mowing their lawn. He was, you know, he was shaving them if they couldn't, you know, if they were really at the end of their life and they couldn't do even the personal grooming, uh, mother taking food. Uh, my granddad, particularly, just to tell you, <laughs> what kind of guy he was when I would go in the summer to stay, you know, for a week or two for our visit, he would always be making two trips to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night, because the first trip was from to take my grandmother and, and me. And then he stopped on the way and we picked up three other widows because they didn't drive any longer than have a car or whatever. So he would let us out. We would always be there 20 or 30 minutes early because he had to make the second trip and he would go back all through town and pick up people who did not have a way to church. He did that as long as I knew him all through my childhood when I would be there. There were always going to be two trips to church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If there was something broken at the church, he was the one to fix it, mop it up, clean it, <laughs> insure it. Uh, even sometimes when we'd be running around, you know, like he would take us out for ice cream. And well, we got to go by the church, just to see if everything's okay. And, you know, we would drive by and I'm thinking, why did he have this sense of responsibility but he he did you know one check make sure all the doors were locked and there was nothing uh broken no no window broken on went saturday he was always up there mowing the church lawn because it wasn't big enough to have a full-time janitorial staff so I, I come by the idea the idea of service in a very natural way from observing my parents and my grandparents doing this working in uh, low-income apartment communities where people are struggling and parents are having to work a lot. Um, and also on top of that, having to shuffle cars because they can't afford for everybody who works to own a car. Uh, the children are, are a lot of times left to themselves, not out of uncaring parents, but out of uh, economic necessity. And what I saw in, in, in the past in doing that, that type of ministry is that children are looking for inspiration and for guidance. And for that type of uh, encouragement and reinforcement that you're sharing that you received from your family. And I want to just remind everyone that uh, think about you being a mentor or being an influence to someone younger in your life. And there's a vast amount of opportunities. Diana, actually, she before broadcast, um, she was sharing with me. She just, I guess, recently rolled off of uh, the board of directors of uh, a nonprofit I was actually uh, the community uh, director of community ministries for, but Diana served there in helping giving guidance to that, that nonprofit. And it had a vast amount of opportunities for service, for people to invest their lives in kids. And then can I mention who you're, have you gone on the board? Uh, sure. But she's, uh, she rolled off of Six Stones Mission Network, which was a large mission organization started by our church, but she's now rolled on to Kids Beach Clubs International, which is a really uh, amazing ministry started by a guy named Jack Terrell and his wife, Tammy. And uh, I don't know how big, do you, do you have any idea? I know you're just going in, but have they given you any kind of understanding of uh, the reach of uh, Kids Beach Clubs right now? It's huge. We are, 
uh, in the last two years since the pandemic would not allow them to go into the public schools, they started a TV ministry. They are carried on many networks now and uh, there are over 500 million homes who have access to this children's programming. It's Christian children's programming. Uh, for So if you just look it up, Kids Beach Club, you will find them probably in your local TV directory. That Well, I did not know that. I tell you, I'm glad you shared that. And uh, having worked with and, and actually sponsoring Kids Beach Clubs when I was a part of Six Stones and seeing the impact and also the receptivity on a local level of the local schools to allow access in the afternoon after school uh, to host the clubs and the receptivity to to the, the whole program um, from the teachers, the leaders of those local schools. So that's phenomenal. And, and what a story that through something that on the surface appeared to be, you know, death to the ministry because it was located in the, the local schools to actually move into uh, uh, the television realm to have a reach. Um, that's, that's cool. So congratulations that you're willing to serve and do that. But folks, that's to say that this is something that is tremendously um, available to everyone to get involved in your local uh, kids clubs, beach clubs, uh, church ministries, uh, the boys club, uh, I assume it's still going, the girls club, scouts, whatever, uh, because the kids are watching and they will move mountains for you. And uh, it's just a tremendous opportunity. But uh, let me ask you this, Diana, mm -hmm. this, your attitude of service, uh, your attitude of, of, uh, of uh, ethics and character and uh, something that an overarching theme that I see is one of uh, accepting responsibility of taking ownership. Do you see uh, in your exposure, you know, you're working with corporate America. Do you see this evidenced on a large scale? Is it something that's still present in the corporate life or have people, I mean, uh, uh, some of the corporate executives have kind of gone to the bottom line to where it's just about the money and it's about, you know, next, you know, next quarter's report. But do you, um, you know, see that, uh, uh, mind of ethics and yes, yes, I I see that it's a, a thing that we're talking about much more in the media, and we're talking about much more as we ride in the HR. You know, I, I get some HR newsletters, and I see them talking about that frequently. But just to give you a local example, uh, we were introducing uh, this. We just had to have a new roof put on our house because of a storm, and so we asked the um, roofer. It's a, it's a large company in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if they would be interested in helping with Six Stones' project and building houses for the needy, you know, doing repairs like you're familiar with. And he said, well, I haven't heard of it. I don't know, uh, but maybe. And so they did a one, one event in the uh, spring, I think it was April. They came, sent their employees to put on a roof for a house that needed a new roof. And their employees, we just got this report. We just had this conversation with the with the owner of the company saying, our people loved it. They loved serving. This is the first time that the company had given them time off to go do this service, to, to work in the community, putting on roofs and doing some other repairs. And so it benefited that company tremendously because he said, his employees were so thrilled and it built teamwork with them like nothing else that he'd ever tried to do. And so he was excited about it. The people themselves who did the work, volunteer work, they were excited about it. So I think it really comes down to the person and the leadership team at the top. 
Are mm. they willing? You know, what is their character? What do they feel as social responsibility? Uh, are they walking their talk with the biblical worldview? And when that happens, yes, but there are many companies out there that have do not have that. And uh, I think they, in the long run, suffer, suffer from it. The context of, of people at the top allowing things, promoting things, and then seeing the the benefit within the the, the structure of the, the organization, uh, I think builds uh, even greater momentum and, and possibility. Uh, right. We don't have you, to those makeup exercises. You know how some companies have people coming in and doing teamwork exercises? If, if people would would take on social uh, causes in their neighborhood for service, it would have the same effect at a lot less cost because they could just send these employees to, you know, to do whatever it is because there's plenty of need out there. And that we were, we're always getting that feedback that it really enhanced their, their relationships and built teamwork. So there's plenty of opportunity. You make a powerful statement. Uh, God doesn't have a hierarchy of jobs or careers with some more worthy than others. And the perspective, it's not what you do, but why you do it. And uh, I would appreciate it. And you kind of touch on this in, in different ways, but uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because to me, it gives hope. I mean, you know, I come from uh, a blue collar family. I'm, I think I'm the first person in my family to actually graduate from college. Definitely the first person to get a master's. Uh, we, we were just blue collar. I mean, and, you know, the fact not everybody is cut out or called to be an executive, to call to be a corporate leader or to teach a Bible study. But you, your perspective gives, I think, encouragement and inspiration to every person who's, who it takes. You know, the Bible talks about the body and, and the different elements of the body, but it takes all those elements working together for us to, to function as a human being. And then also, you know, of course, the Bible's talking about the church. But expound on that a little bit uh, for those of us who grew up blue collar. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, I think that, you know, for a long time or early in my, I know in my growing up years, it was the ministers. And that meant literally the preachers at the church and the missionaries. And that was it. And you didn't realize all the other ways that God calls people into work. That is until you look at the Old Testament and, you know, it, it, back in Genesis, they're talking and all the way through the first four or five books of the Bible, it talks about God calling craftspeople to work on the temple and to do this and to do that. There's there are many other references in the Bible. And then the verse do do your work is unto the Lord, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Those are references to God giving us different talents, different skills, different passion, different circumstances. And whatever you feel like that God is asking you to do, doing it with excellence. And I think that that's, that's, that's a form of worship. Your work is a form of worship. Just do it to the best you can. And as if it's serving your customers, serving your employees, if you're the manager, you're serving employees. If you're the employees, you're serving customers, whatever you're doing. If you're delivering packages, you know, for Amazon or UPS driver or whatever you're doing, it has a purpose. It has a bigger purpose. There's a, maybe you don't see as the worker, you may not see the end result of what you did the day, the package you delivered and how it was so significant to the person who you delivered to and what they were going to do or how they were going to use it. But uh, that's God's plan. 
we we can't have all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. We can't have all ministers. The, the, the real world is out there hurting. And so all of us minister in a different way if we have that mindset. That's that's awesome. My nickname for my wife is Queen. And uh, she's a big Mary Engelbright fan. And, you know, uh, it, you know, one of her statements is like, it's good to be Queen. And uh, we have a tapestry. It shows... Uh, Mary Engelbright's uh, child, you know, she got the crown and she's sitting in this throne, uh, you know, the queen. And so I was hugging her one day and I said, you know, I said, you're my queen. And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, you know what that makes me. And she looked up at me. She's five, two and a half, I'm six foot. She looked up at me and she said, my surf. <laughs> and I said, oh, wait, that's correct. And uh, but I wear the the badge of uh, being a surf, a servant to my wife proudly. But uh, let me say, how are we doing on time? My, my wife is our producer. She's over here in the shadows. We've got five minutes, so we're doing good on time. Um, but uh, and, and because of that, let me ask you just a moment, because you are a prolific author. And I'm telling you, I have, uh, I'm one of those people that you mentioned that has a book in me. I've got several books. I've got the titles. Uh, it gets down to dedicating the time. And, and uh, for those of you watching, uh, as I reached out to Diana about doing this program, she said, well, she gave me the, the schedule of what she had going on, that she was locking herself in her writing room to write her book with intentionality. But can you talk about that? Do we have just a moment? Can you do that? Talk about just anything about writing, because you are definitely an expert. It's what you coach all well, also. My uh, post for today on LinkedIn, I, I talked about the what what you need to be successful. Most people do have a book in them. They have a key idea. They have area of expertise, uh, whether it's cooking or it's driving, uh, you know, some professional commercial vehicle. I don't know what it is, but you are expert in something. God has given you that skill or talent. And to write a book, I think it takes three things for long-term success. And that is self-discipline. You have to actually sit down and and write it. Now you can dictate it, so you could stand up and dictate, but you have to do it. You can't just talk about it. And then I think you have to have um, perseverance because the major publishing houses only, and agents tell me they only accept about 1% of all the, the queries and proposals that come into them. So you have to just be persistent and know that I am going to get this message out to the world. And then I think it takes self-confidence. If God's called you to do something, then you need to have the confidence. A lot of people say, you know, oh, me, I wait, you know, there, there are more people that know this than or they know more about it than I do. But if God has asked you to do that, to share your testimony, to share your legacy, to share your philosophy, to share your theories of doing something and you feel like he's asking you to do it, then then do it. That's what I, I tell my clients when I have I have book more book camps uh, about every one, two or three times a year. And That's a mouthful camp, right there. Boer, yeah, Boer book camps. Yeah. Boo her. I hope people don't do it, but they misunderstand the name sometimes. It's B-O-H-E-R. But at those Boer book camps, the first thing I tell them in the very first module, I say, if you are not strong enough to get rejected, don't ever start. Don't ever think about writing a book because you will be rejected. It is going to take persistence to find the right agent, to find the right publishing house. And then you're going to have to have the self-confidence that your message is worthwhile to get out there. And so I, I just say, hey, don't start. Just check out right now if you don't think you can persist at doing it. Now, in a, in a previous uh, article that you posted on LinkedIn, 
you mentioned the fact about uh, the temptation people have to go and to do like self-publishing through Amazon or one of the other companies that where you can get your stuff formatted, upload it. And, you know, you, you talk about uh, the pros and cons of that. But in, in light of everything, as far as all the radical changing regarding printing, distribution, social media, TikTok, whatever, how how have things changed for you in the realm of writing? And also, if you could give just a little bit of insight uh, towards dealing with an actual publisher. And there's a side question that I hope I'm not overloading the question, but is it better to go with a full book in hand or with an idea? Because you mentioned that. Go, yeah, well, I hope I didn't that. put too much on you. I'll, I'll answer that one first. You need a proposal. There is a protocol. You write a query letter to an agent and, and they represent you to the publishing house. It's just like a realtor represents you in selling your home. So you want to approach it in the right way. And I'm not saying self-publishing is not uh, a good way for some people. For some people that might mention their goal. If they already have an audience out there uh, and they have they're in front of, you know, speaking to 3000 people every week, then they can sell their book in the back of the room and that might be appropriate for them to go self-publish. But if you want to be, if you want to distinguish your expertise in some way and have influence, expand your influence, get your message out in many, many countries, then you want to go to a major publisher because most people don't have that kind of reach. They don't have that contact. They don't have a platform for even distributing their books out to other countries. So, uh, to do that, you you want, you have to follow the, the established protocol, and that is the query, putting together a proposal, and then submitting it the right way through an agent. And that's the way I've always chosen to do it because, as you mentioned, Kenny, we have process. The technology lets anybody publish who wants to publish. I mean, my next door neighbor, my son, my my grandson, it doesn't matter. They've got words so they can design the book, send it, and put it up on Amazon in 24 hours. It will be live. So that is not a distinguishing factor. And the clients who come to me want something that will set them apart, that will give them an edge in their career, that will expand their influence, that will get them a wider audience for their message. And so that's why if you if those are your circumstances and your goals, that's why you have to go to a major publisher. In regards to the major publishers, um, have things changed because of the fact that, well, let me give you, I guess what I'm having in my mind uh, I cannot remember the name of the group, but it's like the Christian Leadership Network. And a lot of uh, key writers wrote books that were just massive selling within the Christian realm, especially Christian leadership. And then one of them in conversation with a friend of mine was talking about how uh, now he can't even get a book published. And so he kind of took things, you know, just in-house. So there, there seems to be in some realms kind of a decay or a decrease. I mean, do you see that? Or is it just changed? Well, the space is so crowded. It's just so much harder to get a book deal because there's so many people wanting to write a book. I mean, you just, the Wall Street Journal did a, a, an article not, not too long ago, a couple of years, three years, saying that eight in their surveys, 80% of the population says they have a book in them. They want to publish. So the competition is just unbelievable now and then the advances that you get paid have gone down that is another big change where you know you might have gotten a hundred thousand dollar advance prepayment 
before you even write your book, now it might be 50,000. So it's, if you got 20,000 10 years ago, now you're getting 10,000. So it's just a major decrease in, in what the, the amount of money that publishers are willing to pay you up front. When we talk about an advance, it's like escrow. They're, they're paying you up front before you ever write this, this book. And that, that is not a change that they've always paid that way, but I'm just saying the amount has gone down. Uh, but then again, they have massive reach and they get you your book and your work out around the world, not just locally to the people you're in front of. Even though things have changed and the field uh, has gotten more crowded, but it sounds like to me that there still is the possibility to have a career and to make money and to have a, make a living if you become successful as a published author through a, a standard publisher, that, that that is still very much a viable option. Is that you're affirming Absolutely. that? just harder to do but yes absolutely and a lot of authors that the book is just a springboard to either start their company to launch a company to launch a bigger product to, to do sell seminar seats to be a keynote speaker it launches and gives you the credibility to do all the other things that are very profitable yeah I, of course i think about uh, i won't mention the political candidate's name but the day and this is tells you how far how long ago it's been i was in a kmart checkout and there's this candidate that uh, was very much, uh, you would probably consider him a very much a Squaresville, but there they are in plaid and jeans and they're kneeling down uh, beside a, a verdant forest. And I'm going, okay, this book has been written for one reason. It's his coming out tome, you know, to, to set the stage of what he's going to be as a candidate. And sure enough, it was, and he appealed to it and a lot of people believed it, but, uh, but that's a good point that, that books have different purposes and uh but yet it's encouraging and uh, i'm gonna move forward uh with writing my books i've got a lot of, my wife's over here shaking her head but uh <laughs> in the preparation for the the other things with uh youtube program that we're doing here and the podcast it has uh, helped shar sharpen my skills to become more succinct in my words and my delivery and i think that's going to help me as a, a book author and i'm going to do it i, I really am going to do it you inspire me to do it but let me ask you just, uh, as we, as we conclude and, and, uh, like I said, before we went on the air, so to speak, uh, hopefully this won't be our last conversation because you are a, a, a vast wealth of information and skill sets and insight. So I hope we can get together and do this again, uh, at some point, but if there's a piece of advice you can impart to the audience, uh, just one thing that you could leave with the people, uh, what would that be in, in your thinking? I would say whatever you feel like God has called you to do, do it with excellence, not mediocre, not average, not this is good enough, but your motto to be, you, see your work as worship and do it with excellence. I think that's a great note to finish on. Let me say that you can find Diana uh, all over the web and we're going to have all of her different uh, media accounts that she has out there. It's sort of like trotlining, isn't it, Diana? You have all these uh, links out there. But definitely you can find her at Boer, Boer Research, that's B-O-O-R-H-E-R, research, R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. And uh, that's her home base, of course. But uh, she's also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. And all of these uh, links will be in the show notes. So I want to invite you to connect in, uh, especially. Uh, Diana, On is LinkedIn the primary avenue through which you're posting? Yes. The things that I'm reading, or is it also available on the other accounts? It, it's uh, available 
everywhere. I'm not too strong on Instagram. I just, you know, that's more social, but yes, I'm doing my business posting on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter and Facebook. All, all three of those I'm on every day. All right. Well, thank you so much. We look forward to next time. Sure. Thanks for watching.